We're going to look at um, Isaiah 5 and 6 for a moment this afternoon. Isaiah 5 and 6. All right. Let me give you the background of what's going on here first because I think it'll be very helpful because I think in some ways what's going on in the background of Isaiah has parallels for our situation today that will help the passage here stand out um, in a greater way for us. Um, This is uh, Isaiah the prophet is ministering to the people of Judah. As you know, that's in the southern part of Israel. I'm trying to find the right passage here, Isaiah 5. And he is ministering during the reigns. You see, in, if you're looking at chapter 1, you see he's ministering the, during the reigns of uh, Jotham and Ahaz and um, Uzziah, Hezekiah. Um, he's ministering around the end of the 7th, uh, 700s B.C. and uh, into the 600s. And if you want to put that in a time frame reference... Most people, it's kind of easy to basically remember when David was, right? This is a nice round number. Approximately, David is approximately a thousand or so years before Christ, right? And you probably know that the captivity of Israel um, is around five, you know, 500, 586 or so. So this is Isaiah's ministering sometime between David and the captivity and slavery uh, in Babylon. Or, to say it another way, he's ministering to his nation somewhere between their best of times and what would be their worst of times, in a way. Um, And in that context, he's ministering to a people who have much spiritual privilege. The people of Israel, of course... Uh, were recipients of God's revelation. They had they had the scriptures. Um, there's one of the Psalms where the psalmist says, "What other nation had your words like we did?" Right. So there's a great privilege. These people have had uh, unusual amount of blessing and access to God's word. They also had had four kings in a row leading up to and and into. Uh, Isaiah's ministry, um, who uh, were leading people in, uh, in, in, in the way of the Lord, not perfectly, but nevertheless, they had, they had had a lot of privilege. And you know, I'm thinking about it in our context here today. We live in a country that has received a lot of spiritual privilege. You know, we have been given much from the Lord we have a lot of access to God's Word, to God's law, and in that way, some similarities. Secondly, the people of Israel at this time were, or the people of Judah, were relatively prosperous in terms of what could have been happening to them. As you know, one of the great world powers at this time is Assyria, who's over east of everybody, east of Israel. And the way that the land is formed, the attackers from Assyria uh, always come from the north. 
And, of course, Judah is in the south. And so Judah is kind of buffered from the worst of the attacks of God's enemies uh, by Israel and, and Syria and so forth. And so they're able to be a little bit isolated from that geographically and, and, and able to prosper a little bit more. So they have privilege, they have prosperity. But in spite of all of this, and in fact, maybe, maybe because of it, in a way, because these people were so privileged and prosperous um, and didn't take advantage of that, they began to decline spiritually in true religion, um, which often seems to be the case, doesn't it? As when God prospers a people, how quickly do they turn away from God? Isn't that true for our lives individually too? God makes everything go great, no problems, and we are tempted to forget about God, kind of be self-sufficient, and we've got everything figured out. We might give God lip service and keep reading the Bible, but you know we don't really pray in earnest and seek His face like we would when He lets things get more difficult. And so that's the situation that Judah was in, in a way... Very much like uh, the situation in which we find our, our country, our culture uh, now. Uh, you see the decline of true religion among the people of Judah when the Lord says, This people draws near to me with their mouth, but their what? Do you remember? Their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 29 13. In other words, it's like they still had in God we trust on their coins, so to speak, but their trust was not in God any longer. Um, they were a, a, a civilization whose culture was religious, but whose hearts weren't affected with faith in the true God. Slowly their culture was shifting away into a number of manifestations of unbelief. You can see it in chapter 5. Take a look at it for a moment. Let's just highlight a few things that the people of Judah were struggling with, like materialism. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room. They were just consumed with getting more, with uh, adding to what they had, uh, with gaining possessions. Not unlike our culture today, we live in what is, I guess, pretty undisputably uh, the richest country in the world, um, many, by many measures at least. Uh, we're so wealthy we're able to do so much. Um, I mean, Americans in general, um, Western cultures, uh, have been blessed by God, have a lot, and like a lot of people who have plenty, Americans have very little time uh, for, for God in, uh, in so many ways, um, are consumed with materialism. And that's the way these people were. Secondly, they were their unbelief was being manifested in sensuality. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Woe 
Again, woe to those who rise early in the morning so that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They're not only involved with materialism, they want to just fulfill their, um, their, uh, their appetites and, and their, um, their senses and with, with everything, and uh, even so much that they are... They are filled with alcohol and drunkenness and, and you know, it doesn't take long to think about our country in terms of the drugs and the alcohol and the sensuality and it's just everywhere. People live to feel good. And uh, if there's one thing that is a guiding principle for most people, uh, it is whatever feels good, whatever seems right. And these people were certainly living for what felt good, both materially but also um, physically. And uh, they were characterized, thirdly, by vanity and lies. Look at verse 18. Here's another woe. Each of these woes upon Judah is a manifestation of their sinfulness. Woe, verse 18, to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood who draw sin as with cart ropes. And we can look around in our culture and get frustrated with the, with the duplicity and the utterly empty rhetoric in politics, for example, just to take one element. All of the corruption and the lies and the deceit and the ungodliness. Um, and that's just in the party I voted for, you know, I mean, not to mention all everybody else. So we, we, we see uh, people lying to each other. If you um, work very long in this world, you will find people lying to you and lying to each other and, and uh, putting out false uh, information in order to get an advantage. No different than the culture of that day. Fourthly, they're characterized by the upending of biblical values. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, see what's going on there? Take a look. Woe to those who call evil, what? Good. And good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Boy, if that isn't a description of where we are today. You know? To look at what is good and call it evil. You know, our culture looks at Christians who are who uphold the exclusiveness of the gospel as the only way, the uh, exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only means to God the Father, and they say that's evil, that's bigoted, that's hateful, that's uh that's uh narrow-minded. And we look at the murder of innocent um Children, babies in the womb, that is. Um, look at the murder of babies in the womb. Um, or uh, the perversion of marriage. And that's held up as something good, right? We've, we've done exactly this. We've called good evil and evil good. Uh, they're characterized fifthly by self-reliance rather than God-reliance. Look at the next woe in verse 21. Or one of the next... Uh, here, verse 21, they are characterized by this, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, 
and clever in their own sight. Right? Now, what are we in but a culture that says, hey, we're pretty smart. In fact, we, have, we are so smart, we realize we don't even need God anymore. God was for those bumpkins that don't know anything to kind of explain the unknown. We're smart now. We've got everything figured out, you know? We, we, did, we just came here by evolution, and, and uh, we didn't need God in the first place, and we don't need God now. We're okay, thank you very much. If you need religion as a crutch, you know, to make it through life, then that's okay, but, you know, we're beyond that. They're wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight, and then, sixthly, they're characterized by a perversion of legal justice. Verse 23. See it? Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Certainly, even in our culture, we see the poor taken advantage of and mistreated. People using their wealth to get unfair advantages and uh, misusing and mistreating those who are powerless. Um, and this is what happens every time sinners get power and wealth. We just, we just use it that way. So that's the world in which Isaiah was preaching, right? That's the culture in which he was called to minister. Now, if you keep that in mind, that will help. This is no longer... You know, the kingdom of David and Solomon that Isaiah is ministering to. They've, got, they've, they've slid a long way from there. So, I want to tell, talk to you then about how to minister in a declining culture. How to minister in a spiritually declining culture. This is where Isaiah is called. Now we come to chapter 6, which is well-known as the calling of Isaiah. Isaiah sees this great vision of the Lord. I don't even think we hardly need to read it. Um, we're so familiar with it. The Lord is high and lifted up. His train, The train of His garments fill the entire temple grounds. There's smoke. There's angels covering their face. We saw a little glimpse of that in our Scripture readings this morning. Right? They're crying, holy, holy, holy. The Lord God, the Almighty, is seated on His throne. This is the great vision that Isaiah sees and he falls down on his face, on his hands, and he says, oh, what? All of this people around me are a bunch of wicked sinners. The first thing he says is what? Woe is me. Because when you really see the Lord, when, we, when anybody, I think this is true, when anyone really sees the Lord in all of His glory, it inevitably has that effect in him of repentance, bringing him to repentance in light of how far short he falls of what he sees. So he confesses his own sin, but then he also recognizes that his culture has turned away from God. Woe is me, for I am undone, and I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips, of, of impure hearts. Right? And, uh, and we know it well, the Lord calls him, who am I? Uh, or, or, uh, or the Lord calls him, rather commissions him, and, uh, and, and he says, here am I, uh, send me uh, to preach and, and teach to, this, to the people. 
And that, and that really is all of us who are Christians, who are called as Christians to live out our Christianity and to speak the gospel into the declining culture in which we find ourselves. That's us. And, um, you know, most of, a, most of the time we kind of end the story there, right? That's the climax of the story for a lot of sermons, right? The, the, the great vision and Isaiah's call and, you know, who's going to go and here am I, send me. And it makes a great song and a great slogan. And we get to the end, and we're like, all right, everybody go. Um, but it's not the end of the story. And, of course, I know you know it because we've been seeing the parallel, the quotation of this from, from Jesus. But I want to highlight, highlight it in a way that I hope will drive it home in a, in a really particular way. Um, the rest of the story is what brings a great difficulty into the life of Isaiah. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Okay, so Isaiah... Chapter 6, verse 9, he's just said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord says to him, verse 9, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. That's Isaiah's message. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Well, that's quite a message, isn't it? The Lord says to him, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What a message! You know, he says, here am I, send me. What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? What's my mission? God says, your mission is to go blind the people, to preach to them, in a way that's only going to make them hardened against you and against your, your message. I mean, this is not the way to build a church, right? <laughs> you tell people, go out and you know, preach what the people want to hear. That's the way you build a big church. This is not what the Lord tells to Isaiah. The reality was that that is, is not the entirety of Isaiah's ministry. And if you read the rest of the book, Isaiah has passages where he speaks comfort to the people of God, encouragement and hope. In fact, some of the most beautiful depictions of the gospel in the Old Testament are in the book of Isaiah. Someday I'm going to preach the book of Isaiah. I'm just excited about it, but that will take, you know, how many years will it take to get through Isaiah? Who knows? Um, we might all be gone before that we get to that. But it's a... Uh, so while there are those things, those passages in the book, and while the book will be a ministry of life to the people of God, while there are many admonitions to the nation to repent and be saved, like Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. While that is his message, it will, in fact, only meet with resistance. God is telling Isaiah at the very beginning of his ministry, I want you to preach to my people, but I'm going to tell you right up front, they will not listen to you. And so, your ministry will be one of hardening, and blinding. And of course, we looked, as you remember in Matthew chapter 13, a couple of weeks ago, 
at the way that God does sometimes punish hardness of heart with hardness. Blindness with more blindness. God is not obligated to show mercy. Sometimes He simply shows justice. He gives you what, you know, in response to your your own hard heart. So that was Isaiah's mission. His commission was this message that was behind the message. The outward message that Isaiah preached was, seek the Lord while He may be found, right? Repent and be saved. But for most of the people of Israel, ultimately Isaiah's message would only serve to harden them more in their decadence and their spiritual um, coldness. So, I mean, how do you think Isaiah felt, you know? I mean, it's, it's so interesting how the Lord called different ministers and different preachers and different prophets to different um, ministries, and, and the Lord gave him the ministry of preaching to no avail. How would you like to be told if you're going to be a preacher? Or whatever, I mean, whatever you do, let's say, whatever you do, I want you to go in and I want you to work all week this week, but I want you to tell you it's going to come to nothing. You know? <laughs> you can just imagine a little bit of the, the struggle, perhaps, anyway, that Isaiah had and the way that we tend to think about such things. And, you know, I think if you were given a difficult assignment like that, I want you to go and do this, but you're going to meet with opposition all along the way. Maybe your first question would be Isaiah's question, right? You might say, well, okay, I'll go in, I'll obey the Lord, I'll preach this hard message, even though it's received. I can do that uh, for a while. I can do that. How, how long? I mean, when are they going to finally turn around, right? And that's Isaiah's question. Look at verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? Right? How long am I called to this kind of ministry? And the Lord said this, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You ever cut down a tree and burn the stump? And uh, I mean, you cut down the tree. We did this in our backyard to make way for a porch and cut down this tree and then took out a chainsaw and trying to cut the stump up and cut further and further down and Finally, sometimes people just light a fire to it and try to burn it up because after you cut and cut and cut, you kind of get as far as you can go and it's pretty much all gone, but it's not totally gone. So then you just set fire to it to get rid of the rest. The Lord says, I'm going to utterly um, take my people out. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to cause this land to be desolate, right? I'm going to cut them down and I'm going to burn them up. And Isaiah... Your ministry is to preach 
and preach and preach and be rejected and rejected and rejected until my wrath has finally fallen upon my people. Well, that's an interesting ministry, and Isaiah had that. Isaiah preached, um, has, has like 60 years of ministry, and that was what characterized it. And what the Lord is doing here for Isaiah is he is right at the front end. The Lord is preparing his heart and mind that this is what's going to take place. The Lord is helping him to be ready ahead of time so that when it happens, he's not utterly discouraged and just, you know, falls apart. He says, no, the Lord said this is the way people are going to respond. Right? They're going to reject it. And yet I'm called to preach this way. We do know that the Bible tells us that God's word will not return empty. It will accomplish what I send it to accomplish. You know, and we hear that. And then we struggle with like, like this mission. Isaiah is supposed to preach and it's not doing anything. He says, what about, what about the verse? Your word won't return empty. It'll always accomplish what you send it to accomplish. Did it not do that with Isaiah? And I think that's where we have to step back and realize that there is a bigger scope to God's purposes than simply His revealed moral will for people. There, there is something, I, it was God's purpose for people to be converted under the ministry of Isaiah, and some were, some repented, but there, was a, there were larger purposes that um, were um, encompassed by God's decree here as well for Isaiah's mission. Sometimes God has a purpose going on behind the scenes. And this is where it gets hard, harder to understand. We don't think about these purposes as much, but they are nevertheless stated purposes of God throughout the Bible such as God's desire to increase the accountability that the people of Israel would have on the Day of Judgment. That they would not be able to say, oh, we didn't have knowledge. We didn't have revelation. We didn't know. They were going to be fully accountable through the ministry of the preaching of Isaiah. Even though God said, that his, that his ministry would do nothing but harden their hearts. God will make sure that no one is, that no one is with, uh, that no one, that everyone, excuse me, is without excuse, right? As Paul says in Romans. God is working behind the scenes to show the greatness of his patience. Right? Are we familiar with that passage in Romans chapter 9, where Paul says, what if God willing to, uh, let's see if I wrote it down, if God willing to um, show His justice endures with patience um, the vessels of wrath that are fitted for destruction so that He can demonstrate the greatness of His mercy toward those who receive it. You know, that's a paraphrase. So the Lord is demonstrating by putting up with the people of Judah, 
for all that time, during all of that preaching, he's demonstrating his patience. He's showing an element of his glory, that he's a God who's long-suffering. He's not quickly angry. He's working behind the scenes to demonstrate the utter righteousness of his judgment when it does finally fall. That this is not something that's undeserved. That when his judgment comes on these people, it will be apparent, it will be very manifest that they deserved every bit of it because of all the the light that he gave them and all of the rebellion that they exhibited in turning away from it again and again and again and again. And then God is at work in Isaiah's ministry, fourthly, by leaving men entirely without excuse. That goes along with that increased accountability, by leaving men entirely without excuse. I think those are stated purposes of God in the Bible for why God doesn't always act in the way that you know we want to see Him act, and yet coincides with this idea that what that when God's word goes out, it never returns void. It always accomplishes his purpose. His purpose was to save a remnant of those people for himself. But his purpose was also to increase the accountability and to show the greatness of his patience and to demonstrate the righteousness of his judgment when it does fall and to leave men without excuse. And I think what, what we tend to say to ourselves, now you see if this is not so, all right? We tend to say, at least in our minds, why do something if it's not going to do any right, not going to do any good, at least the way I think it, it ought to work out or should work out, even what I think the Bible seems to say the way it should work out. Why should I do it if it's not going to do any good? We tend to measure the church's success by her apparent effectiveness. And I tell you that we need um, we need to be people who are faithful above all things. You know, rather than biblicists, we in the American church tend to be pragmatists. We will try to do whatever seems to work to seem to make an effect that we think pleases God and be willing to change whatever we, even what God tells us to do, to sort of tweak that a little bit in order to try to get the effect that we think God wants. And and of all things, this ministry of Isaiah has always served as a corrective to me in my thinking that, that sometimes God calls someone to do something that's going to have the effect that is the exact opposite of what he thinks it should be or wants it to be, and that God has greater and larger purposes in mind that he is working out. And they include the demonstration of mercy, but they also include the demonstration of all of his glory. We tend to fall back. And this is this, a really simple, simple message. One simple takeaway thing is that We need to guard our hearts against the temptation to fall back again and again on pragmatism, what seems to work, rather than being faithful to what God says. And you know, 
we see this so many times in so many ways, and the way that we live our lives individually and the way we respond as churches. You know, um, somebody's stuck in a very difficult marriage, and they say to me, Pastor, I've tried and tried and tried to be the right kind of husband or wife, but it just doesn't work. And by that they mean, I try to do the right thing, but my husband or wife just won't change. And so they're like, I'm ready to quit. I'm going to start try something else because what I've been, what God says to do ain't working. And to default back to that kind of thinking that compromises the, the faithfulness to God's word. Uh, I've threatened many times to preach a sermon called How to Be Miserable in Your Marriage, by which I mean if God has providentially ordained that you are in a relationship that is not as fulfilling as you imagined that marriage might be, or in fact maybe even plain miserable, you need to learn how to stay and glorify God in that marriage no matter what. And, and not, you know, I'm just using marriage as an illustration. It could be in anything, right? And whatever we are doing to do the right thing, even though it doesn't seem to produce the results that we hope it might or want it to. Somebody says, you know, it's no use speaking to that, speaking truth to that, um, to that person, that brother or sister who's living in sin. There's no use speaking truth to them because it'll only make them angrier. You know, we need to try a different approach. We have to be faithful to what God says to do, regardless of whether we think it will work. And you know, we say to ourselves, hey, we're not seeing very many people converted through, through this gospel that is so emphasizing repentance of sin and is so exclusive about Jesus. Uh, this gospel that's so confrontational with people, right? Can't we just, maybe we just need to change our tactic, right? And just be more relational and just, you know, be, you know, be nice to people. And uh, th- don't get me wrong, there's a way to present the gospel in a way that's just plain ornery and, and stinky. But uh, I'm talking about um, the temptation when all of the ground is not producing fruit to say, hey, we need to try a different seed here. Right? We need to tweak the gospel a little. We need to change things up a little bit. Instead of preaching the word, let's just do a little bit more what people want, what will bring them in. Right? The goal isn't Jesus happy if the church is filled up with people? Well, yeah. But in the broader picture, it may be that our particular ministry in our very narrow place and time is, is like Isaiah's. He didn't fill up his church. He drove them all out the back door. That's exactly what God wanted him. That's what God called him to. Who knows but we're, what we're called to that? You know? We see it when we look around and, and people say, hey, Christians, we're losing it. We're losing the culture war. We look in our country and we see what's going on with marriage and we see what's going on with abortion and and uh, all of these things, and, and we're just turning more and more away from God. We're losing the culture wars. We must be doing something wrong. 
And maybe we are, or maybe we're not. Maybe we are exactly where God wants us to be in this big scheme of what God is doing in our particular place. Our calling is just in some ways similar to Isaiah's. The true measure of Isaiah's success was not his apparent effectiveness, but his faithfulness, right? If you believe that, say amen. Okay, all right. I'm going to make sure. Isaiah says, God, uh, the Lord says to Isaiah, Isaiah, it's not going to work in terms of, you know, what we typically want to see, and rightly so, which is the softening of people's heart. God said it's not going to work, but you be faithful. Now, I wonder sometimes if our situation here in the United States and in our culture could be similar. I'm not saying it is. It may be that we're just on the verge of a great revival work of God in our country. Wouldn't that be tremendous? Whoa. And, and the Lord has done that so many times that I would not be surprised if he did it again. Okay. But I'm saying, we don't know, we don't, we don't get to pick what our little part in this great big scheme of what God is doing is. It could be that our, that God's hidden purpose in our ministry, could it be that our hidden purpose is to demonstrate the rightness of God's judgment when it falls. Only God knows, right? Only God knows. But the key is we should be prepared to be faithful no matter what. That's our calling. Be faithful. Do the right thing, and not just simply what we think will quote-unquote work. And I'll leave you with hope. Look at the end of the chapter again, verse 13. Um, the very end of the verse, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed. Remember that seed is one of those words that you say. Now, what is this seed? Right? And Paul talks about it in Galatians. And he says, now don't forget, seed is what? Singular, he says. And it's talking about, of course, he's making reference to Abraham. But he, the, the seed is Christ. So, of course, this is Christ. Christ comes from the stump of Jesse, right? The little shoot that comes up that becomes a branch that flowers out and produces fruit, right? That's Jesus. This is Jesus right here. But it's, but it's by extension, all who are united to Jesus, all who are the branches that are connected to the vine, grafted into Christ. So these people, this holy remnant who would be um, uh, preserved by God spiritually and, 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 and brought back uh, typologically into the land afterwards, this um, this seed is still in the stump and many who go through the judgment come out spiritually cleansed. In fact, look back at chapter 4 real quick. Uh, verses 3 and 4. 
Isaiah prophesied that um, after God's judgment, he says, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called what? Holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of Burning. In other words, God's going to bring a great, a great devastation upon His people, but what's going to be left afterward is going to be purified. It's going to be holy. God's going to purify His people by judgment, and what comes out in the end will be more God-glorifying. And it's true. Judgment of God upon a culture often has had the effect of purifying the church, of cleaning away, clearing away the dross, the hangers-on, and making the church stand out. You think about, I mean, well, I'll give an illustration, but um, it, throughout church history, times when the church of Christ has been persecuted, it's been some of its times of greatest, boldest testimony. That's what he's talking about here. The church will come out purified, holy. They will share His sufferings. They will rely on Him through that suffering and affliction that He's going to bring on the whole nation now. They find Him to be sweet. He separates for the sheep from the goats. He causes His own to see the vanity of the idols of the land and the sin of the land. He unites His people to Him in a more powerful way through persecution and affliction. And He brings them out the other side purified and holy. There may be a stump left, but that stump will become a fruitful vine. And Christ will bear fruit in the line of His people, and His people in Him will bear His own fruit in their lives. That's the sermon in a nutshell. The short term means that we need to be prepared to be faithful to what God says, even when the message falls on deaf ears. I'm talking about personally as we minister to one another and corporately as we live out our life as, as a church and not just us, but all of you know, the true people of God in our culture. As we live out our life, we need to be prepared to be faithful even if the culture, even if it doesn't seem to be working. Right? How long do we need to be prepared to be faithful? Well, the Lord told Isaiah, even to the demise of your country, you think that could ever happen? That our culture becomes so godless that the Lord in mercy brings a great judgment or in, uh, in punishment? In the long term, we need to remember this, that God is using all of this to cleanse His people, to sanctify them, to purify them. And in the end, Christ is victorious. And our problem is that, and this, this is what drives our move, our move to pragmatism, it's that our vision is too small, it's too narrow. We see only right now, right where we live in our little surroundings, and only the immediate, even, in, even a lifetime 
even your lifetime is too small a window to accurately judge the greatness of what God's doing. You have to set that, you have to set Isaiah's one lifetime of ministry in the broader context of what God is doing in saving a people for Himself, purifying them, bringing the Messiah, glorifying the Christ, bringing all of the nations to Himself. You have to set it in that cosmic context. And I think that's the only way to make sense of callings like this is to be faithful and trust that God is using this in the bigger context to work out His great purpose for the world. And, and we just have to play our part. We have, to, we have to be faithful in wherever little peace that He gives us. And some people get the peace. Some people get to be the, the preachers who preach and see revival and break out in their country, right? And uh, other preachers are like Isaiah. And some saints, they live in the midst of renewal and revival and it's just sweet prayer meetings are breaking out everywhere. And some Christians are called to live in a culture that's just going down and down and down. But God, God called them to that particular thing and not to change it because it doesn't seem to be effective, but to be faithful. Because God's got a bigger thing in mind in terms of what He's doing. Be faithful, brothers and sisters, no matter what. Leave the results to God. Amen? Amen? All right. Encourage your heart with that. Hymn 364, let's sing that as we uh, finish out our Lord's Day together. Uh, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you come play for us? I think it's 364. You'll need a hymn book for this one. Um, the verses talk about, let me open to it. Uh, do not be fearful, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Even through fiery trials, when your pathway is there, His grace will be sufficient. So uh, be faithful, be firm on the foundation that God has given us in His Word. Don't sway from that. Let us not do that as a church or as individuals.